In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. St. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, which was a church that he founded as an apostle, and it consisted primarily of converted heathens, not primarily Jews who were brought to fulfillment, but heathens coming to the faith. And so he is actually writing because he received a report. He had sent Silas and Timothy there to continue the work he had done in formation, teaching, and overseeing the church there. And they sent him a report back of how they were doing. And so this prompts Paul to write through Timothy to the church at Thessalonica. This is the first temporarily, the first letter that we have still remaining to us that St. Paul wrote. He wrote it about the year 52, and he wrote it from Corinth. There are two characteristics which he attacks, at least in the, the bit that we have for the Mass today, that were particularly characteristic of heathenism, which are not unfamiliar to us, because heathenism is still around, just as in Thessalonia, so too, even in our beloved South Bend. And those two things, those two horrible vices of unchastity and avarice. St. Paul is exhorting the Thessalonians, and because it is scripture with also a divine author, he and the Holy Ghost is exhorting us as well to live more intensely our vocation as Christians. This is one of the reasons, I think, that the church has put this before our eyes at the beginning of Lent, because this is a time for us to live more intensely, to do better than we are doing. St. Paul doesn't say that they're necessarily doing poorly, but he does say that you can do better. The same thing. I can do better. Lots better. You can do better. Perhaps not as much better as I, but still. We must live more intensely. We must do better than we are doing. And the exhortation he notes comes in the Lord. This is no small thing. For he exhorts us from that living union which leads us to Christ, which binds us to Christ and to one another. It is in the Lord. We need to couple this, what we've just heard also in the Gospel. And that bright cloud that overshadowed the apostles. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. We hear the voice of Christ through St. Paul, for he is an apostle chosen by Christ Himself to teach us dogma and exhort us morally. Therefore, he is teaching us in the Lord about unchastity and avarice so that we might not merely save our souls, but be sanctified. And St. Paul's teaching, he notes, is through the Lord. That is, he is commissioned by Christ to teach the Thessalonians and, by extension, us, the whole dogma and moral course. It is Christ's teaching. It is Christ's will that he communicates to us. So we need not be angry at the messenger, but grateful to him for passing on to us unadulterated the truths of Christ. That is, to stay clear of all unchastity and avarice for the sake of our immortal souls. 
There is a term throughout the New Testament, particularly used by Paul, called saints. This is a reminder to us, a very poignant reminder, that holiness ought to be our defining characteristic. We think now, usually, we only use that term in the sense of canonized saints, those who are in heaven, who are blissfully happy forever with God, who intercede for us. But there is a real sense in which you and I are rightly called saints, inasmuch as we have the faith, we are baptized, and living a sacramental Catholic life. But we are only worthy of it when our holiness is evident, because it is real. This is the defining characteristic of Christians, that we are saints, that is, we are holy. And he emphasizes two distinct features that makes us different than heathens. Our chastity and our generosity. Or on the flip side, the reverse, their unchastity and their avarice. These are the tendencies of heathens. And these we must cast off ourselves, otherwise they will drag us down. And down is not a direction anyone ever wants to go, if you catch my drift. So, in the beginning of the epistle, in his discussion on chastity, he makes a reference to fornication. He's being very terse here, St. Paul, particularly in the Greek. He's talking about fornication, and in the next breath he says, Honor thy wife. And this is the text that I would prefer to preach from as opposed to the Vulgate. The Vulgate gives us a very true understanding of the gist of what Paul is trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate to us, in general, chastity, purity. And all of this must be under the context which he has already laid out. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. Now he's giving us two ways that we must be sanctified. Our purity. What is purity? What is it to be chaste? It is a point of view of our heart. Before it ever gets to our body or our discipline, it is loving God above all things. It is having a single-mindedness, a single-heartedness for God and God alone. That is real purity, and that's where it must begin. Without that, it is simply discipline without true virtue. And we will know that we are not truly pure, that we do not truly possess virtue, when we mistake our virtue for simple lack of opportunity, and when opportunity prevents itself or presents itself, then we will know whether we love God above all things. And this is the goal that St. Paul wants to achieve in us. So putting away fornication and all of that that implies, that is, being in the unmarried state, being pure, putting away all immodesty, all immodesty, this, perhaps a bit unfairly, but naturally, is directed towards women. Having a concern for the men around you by dressing modestly. Behaving modestly. For your own good, not simply for the men around you, but 
to remind yourself of the tremendous dignity you have. Tremendous. First of all, on a natural plane. It is within your bodies, fundamentally, that God works His creation still. Infertility. That is a tremendous power. A tremendous honor. You have a tremendous dignity. But even more so, you are daughters of Our Lady. Behave as such. Demand to be treated as such. Men. I like this version of the Greek, honor thy wife. It is so, I am ashamed to say, woefully neglected these days. Even amongst those who would dare call themselves Catholic or even traditional. Honor your wife. Remember her vast dignity. Not only as the bearer of life and a natural course, but more importantly, as a co-heir to heaven. Configured to Christ. Having a dignity of Our Lady. Treating all women as such. Honoring them. Even before one has a wife, to honor her in the abstract of keeping oneself pure, of keeping oneself virtuous, to be ready and at her disposal to defend her, to protect her, to affirm her, to encourage her in virtue and goodness. That is how we serve Our Lady as men. There is a sense it is true in which St. Paul is referring to marriage and spouses as a remedy for concupiscence. But we must have a right understanding of that. Otherwise, we treat the great sacrament of marriage, which is supposed to have an interior perfecting of the spouses in its mutual help. We, we pervert it and make it a vessel of heathenism and unchastity. The way we do that is, first of all, a forgetfulness that all of us are temples of the Holy Ghost. Temples of the Holy Ghost. In that sense, we are all walking tabernacles. We should regard each other, particularly spouses to one another, as such. But what is this remedy for concupiscence? There is true a obligation that spouses have to each other to render a certain debt. But this is a request from one to another person. This is why it must be always reasonable and just. Out of the dignity of the other person and out of the dignity of the sacramental bond which they share as married spouses. To demand it in any other way is to treat a daughter of Mary or a son of Mary in an objectified way as a tool, as a heathen would. And that attitude must be far from you. There is a remedy for concupiscence, it is true. And it consists in these things. First of all, it guides the spouse's scope for this particular and powerful desire, which is natural, beautiful, but also unruly. 
It gives it its proper scope so that it can be ordered the way God intends. It also imposes a particular kind of chastity on married couples. They are not free to be unchaste, even though they have certain privileges in that state. There must be a restraining influence. Sometimes it's easier to give up something completely than to use it orderly, isn't it? Are you finding this during Lent? It's easier for me not to have chocolate at all in the house for 40 days, rather than actually moderate my appetite for it. So there's a difficulty in marriage. That's why you have special graces. To use this faculty in an orderly way. Remember, we have to be pure, which is to love God above all things, including our own appetites. The remedy for concupiscence that this relationship gives is it forestalls disorder, particularly through marriage graces. Furthermore, it, by being a sacrament, ennobles these acts and makes it an an act of self-sacrifice in the legitimate fulfillment of human sexuality. It is self-sacrifice. It should be always that image of self-donation. Even if, because of circumstances, it is rendered infecund beyond the will of the spouses. There must always be this interpersonal, mutual bonding that it creates. Otherwise, it's less than it ought to be. And it's not as fulfilling as you or I would have it for you. So there must be this mutual giving. Just as there is an essential end in marriage of mutual help found in common life, common charity, common kindness, so too is there this mutual donation, particularly in the spouses. This is all within that idea of honoring your wife. This is all part and parcel of living the Christian life more intensely, more deeply, to truly work out our salvation in the nuts and bolts of our daily duty according to our state in life. There is that other vice St. Paul talks about, which is avarice, which is another disorder of our fallen nature seeking and grasping material things. It is difficult, just as it is, to, to moderate our libido within certain contexts. It is difficult to moderate our appetite for material things, particularly those of us who are in the world and we need material things. You have a right to private property because you have families. Right? That's where that right comes from. But we must never forget the universal destination of goods. We are not absolute over material things. They are for an ordered purpose. It is due proportion. And it even goes back to that type of purity of putting God first above all things. Thus we must always have a use of our wealth. We must always have ways of acquiring wealth that are legitimate, that have consciousness of our brethren. Remembering that universal destiny of goods. To fight worldliness. To not always have new things, following trends, things like that. To overcome selfishness. Particularly in this time of Lent, by giving alms. To kill that covetousness in ourselves. 
Remembering that being too preoccupied with material things causes a forgetfulness of God. That's a horrible person to be forgetful of. Horrible thing. For if God forgets us, where will we be then? But also, to not be harsh or to indifferent to the poor. Using this time to increase our Christianity in intensity and generosity, so that we might grow in virtue. St. Paul was writing these two particular virtues to the Thessalonians because that was a very important trade city. It was a port. You know about port cities, right? Just think of our own. New York, San Francisco. You can find anything there. And by anything, I mean anything bad. So the same thing exists in Thessalonica as it does in America today, even in South Bend believe it or not. So we must always keep ourselves far from covetousness and dishonesty, always working that all of our business has God as its end, to put in a good day's labor for your wage, to pay a fair wage to those who labor for you, making sure that your investments are above board, that every wealth that you acquire is done rightly, and that the wealth that you do amass is used orderly. For there are two reminders at the end of this passage of the epistle of why we should be doing this. Fear of God's judgment is one. All these things will have an exactitude that we cannot comprehend. Just as we cannot comprehend God's mercy of how He does not punish us as much as we deserve ever and rewards us beyond our meriting, there is always an exactitude of His justice, even tempered by His mercy. But more importantly, more fundamentally, and more positively, why do we put these things away from us? Why do we live orderly? Why do we live chastely and generously? is for our holiness. For I hope it didn't break anything. That's the, I don't want any... I can't have nice things. Is that alright? Don't put it back where it was. Put it in a safer place. Always learn from your mistakes. As I was saying, the will of God for us is our sanctification. Not merely our salvation, our sanctification. This is what we're on about. This is what we're striving for. Loving God above all else, particularly in cultivating purity, to love God more than myself, and to love my neighbor as myself, to will good to him, to give him good things, particularly those God has put in my way. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.